gosh, I just switched Lock out of folders. Radio. <laughs> yes. This is all about the wine industry since two thousand nine. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert. Ron. Basically, what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some, some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwine.com. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash all about And now, all about wine is on. Here's Rock. Yeah, I'm, I'm live here. I'm seeing. Yeah, okay. I'm live here. It came, it, it popped yeah. on. Uh, well, where is it now? Yeah, it, it popped on. Uh, well, it says one minute ago, so oh, I don't know. Mine was almost two minutes um, when I was on it. Yeah. Okay, well, so so we're and we're, here we go. And never ding though. Why yeah. didn't that ding? Hmm, that's unusual. All right, we're here live, all about wine. Uh, it is mm. April the twenty-first. 2022, oh no, 2020, not 2000, 2020, yeah, 2000, 2022, and mm-hmm. it is 7.02, uh, it just clicked over, so if you're mm-hmm. listening to us live and you want to ask questions or anything, then go to the chat room on Facebook or Block Talk Radio, any of those, Mike will be right there. Standing by, and uh, standing by, standing by, yeah. And so he can uh, transfer it over. We'll we'll answer your questions on the air and pass it on. Mm -hmm. If it's something we can't, we will research it and get it for you. Tomorrow, Earth Day. I don't know if you all are aware of that. Tomorrow is Earth Day, and uh, it's it's a. It's cool. I mean, the Earth is still here, uh, which is always nice. Wake up in the morning, look outside, and say, "Oh, good, we still got Earth." So uh, I don't know how long that will last, though, the way we treat it. But tomorrow is Earth Day. It started in what nineteen? I want to say nineteen sixty-seven, nineteen sixty-eight, uh, somewhere around there, and. They have all sorts of events and celebrations and stuff going on all over uh, for Earth Day. Uh, Some, I don't know, it died down for a while there back in the 80s, early 90s, Earth Day died down. But then it picked back up again. So So we got Earth Day today, or tomorrow. And let me see. Let me pull out my little calendar here. If I can get through my stack of junk here and find out what else we have that is coming up this next week. Okay, April. Uh, Earth Day is tomorrow. National Talk Like Shakespeare Day is Saturday. You can say things like forsooth and verily into the conversation. Uh, Let's see. Monday, Kiss and Makeup Day. Always present a bottle of wine uh, for your Kiss and Makeup Day. Tuesdays, National South Dakota Day. And I think this is uh, South Dakota Wine Month, too, so that works well. Wednesday, National Babe Ruth Day. And then Thursday is Stop Food Race Day and National Take Your Son and Daughter to Work Day. So you get those to look up to. And the next Friday is National Arbor Day. So you plant a tree. Birthday today and Arbor Day next week. That's always a good thing. 
So that's what's coming up. And I don't think there was any wine holidays in there. That's unusual. April's a slow month for wine holidays, though, so that doesn't surprise me. Oh, I was wrong. Uh, International Kava Day is Saturday. And Sunday, Sauvignon Blanc Day. And then Wednesday, Marcelon. That's what I have for Marcelon. M-A-R-S-E-L-A-N. I'll have to punch that into my my wine calendar here. Or my wine directory side here and see what that is. Marcelon. Hmm. Uh. Hang on, let me find out. Uh, oh, where is it? Here we go, wine grapes. Uh, let's search grapes. Uh, M-A-R. Oh, Marcelin, there it is. Okay, Marcellin is a recent crossing between two famous red grapes, a Grenache and Cabernet Sauvignon. Hmm. Uh, the highly regarded crossing is now found in niche pockets across the globe, from China to Uruguay, with its roots firmly in the Languedoc and Provence regions of southern France. Wines made from Marcelin are medium-bodied with fine tannins, good color, and characteristics of cherry and cassis. It was bred in 1961 by the French National Institute for Agricultural Research. Uh, and uh, after which the grape was named. So it was done in the... Uh, uh, named after the uh, station of the French research in Marcelin. And so they named the great Marcelin. The objective of this breeding program was to create a high-yielding varieties with large berries. Its natural resistance to mildew and botrytis, uh, small berry size, meant that it was shelved at the time and revisited in 1990 when they brought it out and started to produce it. Uh, Most of these IGP wines. What is IGP? Let's find out that. Uh, IGP is Indication of Geographic Protégé, a quality category in France. Okay, there you go. So most of you use an IGP wines. And it is grown mainly in France, 35%, but also Uruguay, Israel, Spain, Brazil, Romania, China, and a little bit in other countries. Doesn't say United States here, so it's not one of our most popular grapes, obviously. Uh, it's used for blending and a lot of southern France staples. And it's also found in parts of Spain, used for blending. And uh, it's a variety that has a foothold in China, where it is uh, used a lot in the province of Hebei, or Hebei, H-E-B-E-I, which is near Beijing. So, next Wednesday, we have Marcellin Wines, uh, Marcellin Wine Day. And the prices range anywhere on this list from $14 on up to here's one for 46 and I'm sure they can go a little bit higher than oh here's one for seven dollars and here's go up to uh fifty two. So you can get pretty much any price range you want, but you're not gonna find any from the United States because they probably don't have any rival. So that is coming up on Wednesday, Marcelin Day. All right. Um any other announcements before we get into the show. I don't think so. We've got ourselves a, a stack of guests that we're working on, so we may have ourselves some guests through um, May and hopefully into June. We've got quite a few here, so it looks like we may have ourselves a whole stack of guests. Uh, most notably, some guests from England 
we are working with a lady from England who is booking us some wineries there. So stay tuned. We will have some interesting guests on coming up in the future, not to mention that we have interesting news for you now. So you don't need to wait until later. All right. Uh, let's see. What's the first thing we want to talk about here? Uh, well, let's talk about... Pinotage. The South African wine, uh, grape and wine Pinotage. It has been around for some time. And I just I had an article on it here, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, it's the Pentatage is a love it or hate it type thing. It really, it, I've had some Pentatages which I just thought was, oh my gosh, this is just fantastic. This is a great grape, and this is a great wine, and I'm going to love this. And then I buy another one, and I go, oh gosh, why did I ever love this to begin with? And then I get another one, and it's like I love this again. Uh, so. It's a hybrid between a Pinot Noir and a Sensol, and it's grown almost exclusively in South Africa. I don't think there's any other countries that do much of it. I'll tell you what, while I'm looking at my grape varieties, why don't we look up Pinotage here on this and see what it, where it is growing. Uh, Pinotage, there it is. And it says that it 98% in South Africa, 1% in Israel, 1% in USA, and then 0.33% in New Zealand, 0.08 in Brazil, 0.07 in Germany, 0.04 in Canada, and 0.04 other places. So pretty much South Africa. Uh, it's... Uh, it's the signature grape of South Africa. It's a, like I said, it was a crossbreeding of Pinot Noir Sensol back by a scientist Abraham Perold in 1925. Wow! So it's uh, it has been around for a while. So let's go back to Pinotage here and see what we have to say here. So. Uh, there's other grapes that are grown in South Africa, obviously, besides just Pentatage. Pentatage is, is one of them, but they do a lot of them there. Malbec, Sauvignon Blanc, and different ones, Syrahs. But Pentatage is the signature grape there. The Malbec and Sauvignon Blanc really is our Malbec from Argentina. When you think of grapes, Sauvignon Blanc, New Zealand, Syrahs, Australia, Pentatage is the grape associated with South Africa, but it has um, been, I don't know, bad, I, I guess bad press on it. Uh, just hasn't really on a lot. You don't hear a lot about it. And it's one that is well, it varies so much. Like I said, I've had some that have been great and I've had some that have been just horrible and I think that's been the problem with Pentatage and so they're trying to reintroduce if you will uh, reinvent I hate that when people say I've reinvented myself but you can do that to wine uh, I think they're trying to reinvent it's a new day if you will for Pentatage and it's starting to uh, get away from the overly lush, ripe, uh, sweet type stuff that Pentatage has been and it's starting to show a little bit more character and a little bit more oh, tannins and the acid and stuff like that. So because of that, Pentatage is starting to pick up a little bit. It's not, uh, not the old style so much. Uh, Todd's Association was established in 1995 to improve the grape's reputation, but the organization just sort of like, okay, whatever you want to make, this is what you do. Uh, and they've, you know, let 
wineries run away with it, whatever they want. They do have a Pentatage Day, which is the second Saturday in October uh, every year. But the Pentatage itself, the wine itself, has really grown up, if you will. Uh, the average Pentatage is better than it was 20 years ago, and it's also uh, got a lot more character to it. Uh, this is, well, this is the third planting of the grape in Africa, uh, in South Africa. And because of that, it is starting to uh, be more mature, starting to show a lot more of its character. Uh, they're pruning it earlier in the winter months, uh, removing the excess shoots, and and really coming up with a, a hardier grape that has showing its structure and its overall balance. Uh, so this has improved the grape over the number of last, well, 10 years or so. And because of that, it's starting to become more widely accepted, more widely talked about, and more widely um, sold uh, everywhere, not just in South Africa, but it's being sold everywhere. So... Pentatage. I like I said, I've had them. I haven't had one in oh geez, it's been three or four years. I, you know, whenever I speak of timelines too, COVID pops in there and just throws that gap right in the middle of there that you didn't do anything. So when I say three or four years, probably been four or five years because of the COVID gap, um, which drives you crazy, obviously. But there are a lot of Good Pentatage out there. Um, here's a, a list of some of them here that uh, getting some, you know, 93, 92 points, uh, a lot of 91, and 90. And these are ranging in price from $15 up to $55. So it's a good range there and a good price uh, to fit everyone's budget. So go out and find yourself a Pentatage, Afri South African Pentatage. There's some great ones out there. Uh, Spear, S-P-I-E-R, 2019 Signature Collection. That's from the Western Cape. That's only $14. And it's listed as a Best Buy. Here's another Best Buy, a Warwick 2019, the First Lady Pentatage. So these are uh, price wines. If you want to go on up into a a 93 rating, and this is from the uh, wine enthusiast, uh, 90, 93 rating is the Belslar, B-E-E-S-L-A-A-R, Belslar 2019 Pentatage. Uh, that's $55, and everything in between. So I'm going to have to go out and give myself a Pentatage. You guys do it too. Uh, give it a try, because they really have improved them and, and taken the basic pentatons that we were so used to being light and fruity and, and, and toughened it up, I guess is a good way to put it. Okay, let me go and to the next thing I want to talk about here. Oh, pentatons. I'm still looking at that. Okay, uh... New sweetness. There we go. This is something. Alsace wines are putting out a new standardized sweetness guide. And this is going to be required on all Alsace wine labels. A guide on wine to tell you the sweetness level, I think, has always been a good idea. Canada does this and I think Canada has changed and has their their standards now but Canada came out and says okay we're going to have this guide here one's going to be not sweet at all two a little bit sweeter on up to five that's the sweetest I think five was the top but when it came out I don't think they had any standards because I taste some Canadian wines that was a five and they were not real, well, they were real sweet, but then I taste one that was a two, and that was very, very sweet also. And I think because people like sweet wines, they sort of hedge their numbers to try to get people to buy it. They 
have a standard of sweetness now and fool people. So it, it is what it is now on, on the sweetness, and that's what it is. Well, Alsace has came out with a guide, too, and they said this is to help clarify uh, the pinpoint the sweetness levels of the wines that come from the bottle. Uh, this is from the Alsace Vintage of 2021 onward. This is going to be the standard that you're going to see on all the bottles now. And the labeling law was officially passed in May 2021, but the harvest didn't happen until uh, September to October, so the new labels won't appear on the shelves yet. But the next batch of labels from Alsace will be on the shelf. And it's a sweetness label. Now, not all Alsace wines are sweet, and this is something that uh, some people tend to think that they are and they are not. So this is what they're trying to help clarify on this also. Wine producers have uh, two options of how they do it. They can indicate it on the content of it by words, or they can have a little chart. Uh, they can have SEC, S-E-C, which is dry, demisec, which is off-dry, Mousselet, or Mousselet, I think it's pronounced Mousselet, M-O-E-L-L-E-U-X, which is medium sweet, and Doux, D-O-U-X, which is sweet. Now, they can put these on the label, and it sort of reminds you of champagne a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, the way that they label those, but it's, you know, it helps. Or they can put a little line chart with those four categories, and a little arrow of where the sweetness level falls. But it's not just a made-up sweetness level, okay? The four categories are defined by uh, a European Union model that also takes into account, account the tartaric acid as well as the sugar because the balance between the residual sugar and acid in wine is essential, especially for the white wines that they're putting out because the level of acidity plays a part in its sweetness level. So when they do these numbers, they factor in both the acid and the sweetness. So the new guideline is uh, is defined as one in which the sugar content of the wine does not exceed 4 grams per liter. A medium dry or demisic wine contains a sugar content of between 4 grams a liter and 12 grams a liter. The mellow or melex, mellow, I think it's pronounced, there you go, thank you, article. Mellow wines have a sugar content of between 12 grams a liter and 45 grams a liter. That's pretty high, I thought, when I first read this. And then sweet or dull wines feature a sugar content in excess of 45 grams per liter. So those are the standard. They have to be in that. And it's the it's going to apply to advertising, marketing materials, invoices, any of the containers as well as wine labels. So whatever they use that they need to use in all of them to show all the time what it is. And I'm sure vintages might change or how they work with it and all that. But this is this is your basic guidelines here. And they hope that it's going to be useful to like sommeliers who are trying to provide pairing for dinner and stuff like that. And it could also help the Alsace reasonings and the sweetness style because they're all not sweet. Some of them are dry, and so people won't pick up. It's like reasonings itself. People, I found at the winery, people go, oh, I love a reasoning. I like that sweetness. Well, reasonings aren't always sweet. There's a lot of dry reasonings. And so this will show people on the label immediately that just because it says reasoning, it is not going to be a sweet wine. So, new guideline for Alsace. Okay. NFTs, non-fundable uh, tokens. Fungible, I think it's pronounced, isn't it? Non-fungible tokens. Wineries are looking at using that. Now, MFTs, 
Um, I'm sure you've heard of MFTs. Here in Florida, not in the Bay Area here, a house went up for sale for NFTs. And it's representing the purchase of an asset on the blockchain, serving as a digital receipt for the purchase. So there's nothing there. It's Bitcoin is probably the most famous NFT, but there are lots and lots of them out there. And Bitcoin is probably the, the I think, one of the first ones, and they're jumping all over. But there's lots of other NFTs out there, non, non-fungible uh, tokens. And they go through the cloud and stored in the cloud, and there's no paperwork or anything, and all that's just, you know, computer. But they're not regulated at all. And that's why people like them, because they're not regulated. And people say, well, this is the, the currency of the future. Well, I just saw something a couple of days ago that China, oh, was it China? I'm pr- pretty sure it was China is looking at doing some regulations on NFTs, on Bitcoins and stuff like that. Well, if they start doing regulations on it, that's pretty much money. It doesn't it doesn't give you something new and interesting in the NFTs. It just, with regulations on it, it's just money and what we do now. But as of right now, they haven't uh, adapted the money. So it's evolving to point where it's increasing demand and it's disrupting uh, innovations. I mean, one of the most disruptive innovations that, you know, in my lifetime, I I remember. But the potential is yet to be seen. I mean, what they're going to do with it and all that. Now, the reason I bring up NFTs is they're looking at wineries, they're looking at taking Bitcoins and NFTs uh, for higher price bottles. It's possible to see rare bottlings being minted and sold only as NFTs. Uh, who knows? You know, uh, some of the wines sell for hundreds of dollars. Uh, even some of the older ones, thousands. You get collector items. And you're looking at thousands of dollars, and NFTs would work for that. So, the traditionally NFTs are minted from digital files, and doing that, it's not going to be anything that's going to be on paper. It's all going to be on in the cloud, blockchains, and stuff like that. And another thing with NFTs, which I think people are going to start regulating all that, the type of computer power it takes to continuously run the non-fungible tokens is enormous. It uses up a lot of energy, which is not green. I mean, people say, oh, this is really a green way to do money. It isn't. The computers and the blockchain and all that is a tremendous amount of energy is used on that. So this might be something that is going to be regulated and looked at in the future. But as of right now, it is uh, going to start being used for different wineries for sale, for sale of some of their items and all that. They are looking at, I haven't heard of any winery that's doing it full-time, although I've seen the bits here and there that you know, Napa is looking at, you know, Bitcoin or Napa is looking at NFTs and stuff. But Napa is a big place. That's like saying, you know, grocery stores are looking at doing something. You know, I mean, it's just, there's so many. So as I start seeing things happening here, I will let you know about that stuff. But I... I if you bought Bitcoin back 10 years ago, you're a millionaire now. I mean, when it first came out, it, it just exploded, and you are a millionaire now. Getting it now is iffy, and when they and if they start regulating it, it's going to be just like money, and it's going to lose its appeal, I believe. 
So, again, I'll try to keep you informed on what wineries are doing with that. I expect them to do it. I expect some of them to do it. But we'll see what's going to happen on all those. Excuse me. I saw something in the San Francisco Chronicle last, what day was this in there? Monday. That caught my eye. This was on the front page of the paper of the San Francisco Chronicle. And I told you I get the Chronicle to look at wineries and stuff. But this is something that really caught my eye. It says, the headline was, Wineries Struggle with Serial Lawsuits. And I go, what? And the subheadline was, Florida Man Targets Websites Accessibility. Okay, now they're talking about this one winery, um, Reed Family Vineyards in Napa. Uh, and there is a Reed... Uh, Reed's Livery and Winery in Kentucky, I think it was, that was on our show. So this is different. This is nothing, not the ones we interviewed. But Reed Family Vineyards in Napa paid $8,000 to settle a lawsuit by a Florida man who alleged that the Venter's website failed to meet federal accessibility standards. And I went, what? What did the animal... A website federal accessibility. So I did some research on this, and I found. Oops, where is it? Oh no. I I found a couple of things. One that it's really not clear in the American with Disabilities Act of what should be accessible for people with disabilities on websites. So they are now referring to what they call WCAG, which is short for Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And this is in 2.0, it says here. It's WCAG documents itself and the concept of how people should be doing it. And it's, it's, it goes on a different thing. But the four basic principles that they go by is perceivable. Information and users' interface components must be presentable to users in ways they can perceive. Okay, can't be invisible to all the senses. Operable. Users' interface components and navigation must be operable. That means that users must be able to operate it and work around on the platform. Understandable. Information and the operation of user interface must be understandable. And robust. Content must be robust enough that it can be interpreted reliably by a wide variety of user agents, including assistive technologies. Okay, now this is the, the standard that they're going by, but this is not written into the Americans Disabilities Act. I started to search and I found that this popped up, these lawsuits popped up back in 1917 in New York. Uh, New York Wineries were being sued because they weren't compliant to the ADA. And they said plaintiffs are seeking injunction relief on their ADA claim and an order requiring the wineries to take all steps necessary to make their websites compliant with the ADA. And I'm going, well, you know. But what it basically boils down to is people with bad eyesight, people who can't read, or can't see well enough to read it, is complaining because it's not ADA compliant. I know, I know. There's that, that creates all sorts of stuff. But they're winning, though. They're winning. They're winning these lawsuits. And it's not a lot. This is the thing. Uh, Reed Winery, which I just told you about, 
settled for eight thousand dollars. They said, "Here, here's eight thousand dollars. You know, don't bother me anymore." And so that was into that. There, it, this started out with a law firm back in seventeen in New York State, and they was the one that was doing the lawsuits against the wineries. They were being settled for twelve, fifteen, eighteen, twenty-five thousand dollars. Not a lot. The the wineries figured that if they tried to take it to court, it was too much money that they would end up spending over eight thousand or something. Uh, Reed even said that he said he checked into the cost of battling this and found that it would probably end up costing $25,000, $30,000. So he just went ahead and settled for 8000 And most wineries are doing that. And this happened back in New York in 1917, 1918. Most of the wineries were settling for a lot less than it would cost them if they were to go ahead and you know try to fight it. And then it stopped, and now it's picking up again in California. There are all sorts of wineries in California that are being sued, actually over 50 of them that are being hit with disability lawsuits. And it says that it's it's not a fix-your website thing uh, because it's already been filed. They can't, they're not letting them know first that they need to come up to ADA standards for being able to read the site. What's happening is they're being sued and that's the first they hear about it. So this is another, you know, BS thing, I think. Uh, Napa wineries and Sonoma wineries uh, have been sued. Uh, Jackson Family Wines, uh, Gregorich Hills Estate, Plum Jack Wine Company, Red Car Wine Company, Foley Family Estates, all these have been sued because they are not up to ADA standards. Uh, Vintage Wine Estates, uh, which owns 37 wineries, has opted to settle. He says it's just too expensive to fight them. Well, the lawyers that are handling the cases for the wineries are saying, you know, yes, it is. It's too expensive to fight them. We, we can't do it. But the other, well, I'm going to say other lawyers, uh, not for the ones that's fallen, but the ones that are uh, uh, um district attorneys and different ones like this around the area said that they really do need to look at fighting it. They need to get a group of them together. Uh, the, a decade ago, a defendant might expect to settle for 5000 to $10,000. Uh, but now uh, it's typically going up to 15000 to twenty-five, and in some areas fifteen to 45000 Now, this is for a website case. I mean, oh my gosh, uh, it, it just, and basically it's because it's not made so that they can navigate it and read it easy. I had a cousin who was legally blind. He could still see, but he was legally blind. And he had a great big magnifying screen that he set in front of his computer screen so that he can read everything on it. And that's the only way he can do it. And it, the, the thought of suing because it did not comply to the Americans for Disabilities Act never occurred to him. Uh, and I think if it did, he would have because he was that type of person. But this is, you know, this is ridiculous in my opinion because it's going to be passed on to us consumers. And that's all that's going to happen. I mean, it's, it, the wineries can't absorb this stuff. And so it's just, 
you know, it's, it's going to continue on. But it started in New York, you know, three, four years ago. Now it's hitting Napa and Sonoma counties. Uh, and it's, it's, it's getting out of hand, this, this stuff I hear. And the lawyer's office that is handling this stuff is located in San Diego. And the San Francisco Chronicle tried to contact the lawyer firm, ask them questions, and they would not talk with them and would not uh, return their calls. And so, I don't know. It's just, I, you, you know the story. If I see anything else on it, I will let you know. But I expect this is going to continue until they clarify completely the ADA and stop this stuff. Uh, they said that the uh, serial ADA lawsuits targeting a specific industry are not new. Uh, the San Francisco attorney, a uh, couple of attorneys, uh, Mr. Butler and Mr. Mitchell, <coughs> excuse me, who specialize in ADA compliance, said that uh, the courts and the publics are losing patience with this stuff. And it says that because of all these little ADA complaints, it's taking up 25 to 30% of the district court's civil suit caseload. Well, that's a lot. I mean, think about that, 25 to 30%. So it's, uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, some of them tasting rooms. It's uh, architectural barriers that they've been sued for, like they'll have a gravel parking lot. Uh, which is, uh, you know, not wheelchair accessible. They don't have an entry ramp uh, to all of them, which is not wheelchair accessible. And there's lots of other little things. I've never read the ADA, but using those things is so full of, you know, legalese work that you wouldn't understand most of it anyway. But this is what's going on. And this is the reason I'm telling you this, too. It's going to affect us. It, it, because we buy wine, and we buy Napa wine, or we buy Sonoma wine, or even New York. I'm sure their prices went up because of that. When we buy wine, it's because of these lawsuits, so it's affecting us. So, But if I see anything more about this stuff, I will let you know. Okay. A couple of, about three weeks ago, I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was about three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, I mentioned something to you about Mexican wine. Not New Mexico, but Mexico. And I said that I would look it up. Well, I did. And, oh, my gosh, I was amazed and overwhelmed at how well Mexican wine really does. Uh, this was uh, a... Uh, an eye-opener for me. Mexican wines uh, is on the rise. It's becoming, uh, and because it is something that's been around for ever, uh, the Spanish brought over clippings when they discovered Mexico and defeated the Aztecs and uh, uh, took over the country, and they planted wines are planted grapes uh, from Spain. And they, the grapevines did very well. And the Spanish grapevines uh, uh, did well here in what they called New Spain or Mexico. And by the 17th century, wine exports from Spain to the New World fell to almost nothing because they were doing so well with growing grapes and making wine. And that did not set well with Charles II of Spain, the ruler, in 1699. So he made it illegal to uh, make wine in Mexico, except for the church. So for many, many years, there was no wine made in Mexico except for just the small-scale uh, wineries and a few people who did it illegally, which you always find those. But when Mexico got its independence from Spain, their 
all of a sudden started to rise in the use or into making of wines. And they have been doing it, except for a few glitches like the Mexican Revolution set back the production. Uh, but uh, wine in Mexico has been rising both quality and quantity since the 1980s. So it is really new. But uh, competition from foreign wines and a 40% tax on uh, wines made in the country have really hurt the Mexican wine industry. Mexico itself is not a wine-drinking country. So this is something that has also put uh, a damper, if you will, on Mexican wines. Uh, Mexico prefers beers, tequila, mezcal, and wine is just sort of a tourist thing and also used in some of the big cities and restaurants and stuff like that. But production has picked up and the wineries have picked up and the quality has picked up over the last 20, well, more than that, over the last 30 years. And in 2020, the uh, Don Leo Grand Reserva Cabernet Sauvignon won a gold medal at international Cabernet competition and the trophy for the world's best Cabernet, which basically put them on the map. It was like their uh, adjustment in Paris type uh, type moment, and so they've been doing it ever since. There, are, <clears throat> excuse me, Ken. there are three wine-producing regions in Mexico. The biggest and most is the Baja California. Now, if you're not familiar, Baja California is south of San Diego, uh, Tijuana, and on down into the peninsula, and they produce like 90% of Mexican wines. They, and one of the problems too in that area, and they would probably get more tourists, but Tijuana is such a crime-ridden drug area that people are afraid to drive through that area to go down to the wine regions. They said that the wine regions themselves are pretty much crime-free, but the the Tijuana and the route to the wine areas are so crime-ridden that it really has cut off the possibilities of, uh, well, my engineer just brought me in a wine with the show being late. <clears throat> well, let me tell you what this is here. This is a 1924 limited edition, double black, aged in, uh, or aged in uh, this, I thought I saw this aged in oak. Our uh, bourbon barrels. Uh, 2019 Cabernet Sauvignon from Lodi, California. From Gnarly Head Wines. You all have probably seen Gnarly Head out there. This is one of theirs. And it says, 1924, the heart of the Prohibition era and wine's darkest hour when it was deemed illegal. It was also the year of our winery first planted vineyards in California and farmed grapes that were sold to friends and neighbors. Story goes some of these grapes might have been used to make wine. For those that dared to toil in the black market of winemaking, full-bodied red wine for the wine of choice and a crowd favorite at speakeasies across the country. This is crafted from the finest fruit grown in the select Lodi vineyards. Our 1924 Cabernet Sauvignon delivers dark, rich flavors of blackberries and currants with a hint of vanilla spice, balanced with velvety tannin in a style reminiscent of the Prohibition era. Never had a wine from the Prohibition era, so I really can't tell you if it's in that style or not. I might be old, but I'm not quite that old. Okay, let's see what this is like. A nice garnet color. Rather dark too. Geez, you can see my fingers through the through the glass to the wine. That's using my indication of how dark a wine is. And let's see what the legs look like for those of you who are 
one, two, like that. Oh, yeah, very nice legs. And those slow-moving, thick legs. Oh, that's nice. Oh, a very nice aroma, too. I can detect uh, black blackberries. I can... I'm not picking up any vanilla, like I said. I wish I could, because that's always like that vanilla in a wine, but no vanilla in this. Oh, good currant blackberry aroma. Oh, that is very good. Um, never judge one on your first sip, always on your second. Oh, that is very well balanced. Just enough acid in it to, to, to fill the mouth, but the tannins are, are well balanced. It's not overly heavy. It's got some nice uh, dark fruit flavors to it. I do get the hint of the vanilla in the in the aftertaste. Oh, this is delicious. Yeah, it is. Very good wine. Uh, 1924 limited edition, double black, 2019 vintage Cabernet Sauvignon from Lodi, made by Gnarly Head. You've probably seen Gnarly Head bottles out there. This is this is very good. Very, very good. So we have to pour ourselves some of this to finish up the show here. Okay, so we were talking about Mexican wine. Baja Peninsula is the area where this, most of them are produced. 90% of the wines come from that area. There is a valley there. Uh, well, wait a minute. There's a, a, the tourism is enotourism uh, with the Ruta del Vino, which means wine route. And then it connects over 50 wineries in that area. 50 wineries in that area. Jeez. And they also have all sorts of festivals and all sorts of things going on there all the time, almost throughout the year. Uh, wine consumption is picking up there in Mexico. <coughs> Excuse me. It is still really, really low. Uh, the average wine consumption per capita is about two glasses a year. Two glasses a year. Jeez, I, I go through that in an evening. Uh, Mexican government imposes a 40% tax per bottle, and so it's almost impossible for the wine industry to compete with the beer and tequila, uh, although it's growing. the uh, Since 2005, it has nearly quadrupled, four times higher now than it was in 2005. So... It is picking up. Most of the wine consumed in Mexico is imported from Europe, too. Uh, Chile, Australia, New Zealand, with uh, about 40% coming from domestic wineries. Although the middle class is starting to drink more in Mexico, they're starting to discover wines, and restaurants are now carrying Mexican wines. That For a while there restaurants when it touch it. Now you go into just about any restaurant from high-end uh, sophisticated restaurants down to a smaller one that does carry wine and you will find Mexican wines in them. So it is something that is really starting to catch on in the country. Um, the uh, tariffs that they used to have is uh, has been dropped. Uh, wine drinking is not widespread in Mexico, but brandy is. Uh, consumption of brandy is uh, really high. It's the most widespread distilled liquor in Mexico. And uh, it's even more popular than rum or tequila. Go figure, I mean, if you will. Mexico is the fourth largest consumer of brandy in the world behind. And I'm going to give you these other three, and you're going to go, what? I did when I read them. The Philippines is number one on brandy consumption. Germany is number two. And Equatorial Guiana is number three. What? Yeah, 
So, uh, last Mexico Mexican tariff on imported brandy was lifted uh, back at the 2000 or early 2000s, and so uh, the sales and consumption to rise because of the lower tariffs. There's uh, 6,200 acres or 2,500 hectares uh, planted in grapes in Mexico, which, you know, you get about that much just in Napa alone, almost. Um, principal white wines coming on Mexico, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and Vognier. And the reds include all five of the Bordeaux varietals, which is Cabernet, Merlot, uh, come on, my brain. Uh, Ping and Wong. Well, I don't know. And the other two. Uh, plus Grenache, Tempranillo, Dolcetto, Syrah, and Petite Syrah. So uh, these are the grapes that you're going to find in Mexico. Three wine-growing regions in Mexico, Baja Peninsula being the biggest, Baja Sonora, and La Laguna, the La Laguna area is in Chihula and Durango. And uh, the third one consists of Zacatecas, Aquacalantes, and Cuatero. And for all of you Mexicans out there, I apologize for destroying those names. Um, the There is one valley uh, that is uh, uh, in the La, La Laguna region. It's the oldest winemaking area of Mexico. And it straddles the state of uh, Calhula and Durango. And the grapes thrive in this uh, Paris, P-A-R-R-A-S, Paris, Paris Valley. And they're saying that there are places in the world that are fantastic Valleys that are fantastic for grape growing, Napa being one, and uh, Bordeaux region being another one, and this valley. Uh, it's the the climates is perfect. It has your uh, temperature difference of about 22 degrees between day and night. Uh, it's beneficial to grapes. It's uh, warm uh, days, cool nights, low humidity, which you know helps in inhibit insect and fungus damage. It is fed by mountain springs, so it has plenty of water. And so it is really one of the better regions in the world, they're saying, for grape growing. And it's at an elevation of, I think, well, let's see, I thought I saw something, 5,000 feet, something like that, so it's a little bit higher elevation. So uh, Mexico, Mexican wines, it's just, it's amazing how much they've they've done. I mean, considering that they were quiet for almost three centuries because of an edict saying that they couldn't make wine, they've really expanded a lot. They are trying to work more and more on uh, tourism uh, because the grapes aren't, uh, or the wines aren't being sold outside the country a lot, and they're trying to work more and more on tourism. Although I did look up Mexican wines where they're sold, and they really are speckled all over the place. You can probably go to your local wine shop or to a bigger one like uh, Total Wines or something and definitely find some Mexican wines because they are everywhere. I was surprised at how many Mexican wines are exported out of Mexico into different areas. And we've even around here, I've seen a lot of wine shops uh, on the chart I was looking at showed them around here. So it's something that will, I'm sure, continue to grow as Mexico is discovered more and more. But uh, there's a lot of them out there, a lot of uh, great Mexican wines and all sorts of different types, Merlots and Cabs and all sorts of different ones. And if you're in Mexico, and especially Baja, California, <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me, area, then uh, it is a, a great area for growing and all sorts of stuff. It's just a, a big growing area. One thing I did find, though, that I'd never heard of before 
is agave wine. Yes, the same plant that makes tequila, agave wine. And it originates from Mexico. It's a fortified wine, and it's made from fermented blue agave. Uh, and then it's blended with Blanco tequila. And that's how it's uh, fortified, fermented from the blue agave. It's similar to tequila in that it's harvested from the same plant, although the two alcoholic beverages come from the Weber blue agave plant. Uh, the drinks are pretty similar, but different flavors. Gavi wine has a much lower alcohol content and can be sold by vendors in the United States without an official liquor license. Hmm. Also, like tequila, agave wine comes in 100% diagave and mixto versions. 100% diagave wine has long been used in traditional Mexican margaritas and is said to make margaritas that are as good, if not better, than traditional tequila-based margaritas. How about that? So, uh, agave wine. I don't think I've ever seen agave wine. It says it is very popular in Mexico, and it is growing in popularity in the United States. So you can look for that, A-G-A-V-E, agave wine. And so Mexican wines, I, it just, it's uh, fascinating, uh, the history behind it and uh, the uh, stuff. I didn't get into some of the stuff I read here, uh, but look it up yourself. Uh, Wikipedia has a great article on it, uh, Mexican wines, and there's a lot of other different things about Mexican wines all over the web. But I think the best thing to do, and I know I'm going to, is go out and buy myself a bottle of Mexican wine and start giving it some some tastings. And when I do, I will pass on my tasting notes to you and let you know about Mexican wines. So. Uh, nice. Yeah. So a 40% found, tax? You 40% tax. Yeah. That's yeah. unbelievable. That's that's uh, like criminal. I just, that is criminal. I that, it's like, oh, what? That's, that's ridiculous. But, uh, it, it is. You know, uh, and no wonder, it, you know, they're not doing Although, you know, restaurants, they said that it was unheard of for restaurants to carry their own Mexican wine, but now they're requesting it uh, more and more. So yeah. they're eating a 40% tax and, and getting it in the restaurants. Mm. So. But, yeah, 40% wow. tax. And I... When I first saw that, I said, you know, how how can they compete against uh, you know in, anything they do in, in Mexico? How how can they compete against foreign wines if they're paying forty percent tax on theirs? But you know, yeah. also uh, Fountains of Wayne, uh, the group. Uh, I don't know if you all remember that. I do. They sang a song called Mexican Wine. So uh, it's uh, so when you look up Mexican Wine, be sure you skip over the Fountains of Wayne song and go to Mexican Wine. So, all right. Well, there we go. It's uh, 8.04 p.m. Eastern Time uh, for the live show. Um we will uh, go ahead and close the show for the 21st of April and see you on the 28th next Thursday. We're on live every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern time in the U.S. So if you're worldwide, you want to catch us live, that's the time to do it. So yes. uh, thank you all for tuning in. And I need to move a couple of things around so I can get to the folder. Oh, there it is. And uh, thank you all. We'll, Talk to you next week, and have a great weekend, and be safe. Thank you. And be safe. Thank you for listening. Uh, I got go three monitors. There we go. Oh. <laughs> I forgot to turn them. Unmute it. <laughs> Hang on. Let me that do up. that. There we go. So this switch, the next switch. There we go. Key the band. <laughs> this can be- it's my first day. <laughs> tonight's broadcast is all about wine with your host, Ron. For show information, links to all about wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on the show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com.
www.thebigshowtalkradio.com. Archived shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash all about wine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention Amazon, too. We're also on Amazon uh, Music. I still haven't oh. found it, but according to them, we're on it. So. We're on Amazon Music. Oh, cool. This. Oh, let me shut this off. <laughs> <It's a lot>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there we go. We're off of right. Facebook and going to the green room for a minute, and uh, we'll be out. We'll get